At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello, I'm David Nutt and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. And today I'm delighted to have with me as my guest, the person I call the ultimate trailblazer in the field of psychedelic research. And she's Amanda Fielding from the Beckley Foundation. Hello, Amanda, and welcome. Hello, Dave. How lovely to be hearing you again. It's good to see you. It's been a year, isn't it, since we've been locked down and out of contact. Yes, it's amazing. I miss our fortnightly suppers when we discussed our research and did all sorts of exciting things together. But still, I find being tied in solitary one, in a funny sort of way, does much more work because one's hyper-connected to the world and it kind of produces a lot of activity in the last year, I find. Absolutely. And the good thing is we're both still here to talk about it. Yeah. Both virally. <laughs> so, Amanda, the way I like to do these podcasts is to get people to start from the beginning because I think individual stories, life stories are are really the most interesting way of understanding who they are and, and why they went where they went. And uh, I know your life story is particularly interesting. So would you like to start and tell us how you ended up running a psychedelic research institute like Beckley? Right. Well, I wonder how to minimise it down. I grew up in a very unordinary setting. It's a house, very beautiful old Tudor hunting lodge, but basically on a Saxon castle with three moats and it was very isolated on the edge of a moor and my parents were definitely my father was an eccentric and so it was a strange rather isolated upbringing we had nothing much to do but kind of mooch around in nature having little mystical experiences and dreaming about the future and then I finally decided to leave home and went to a boarding school, which was a terrible mistake. And I won the science, the school science prize and wanted books on Buddhism because my godfather was a famous Buddhist monk and I'd never met him, but I kind of held him rather high in my imagination. And the nuns refused to give me books on Buddhism and said they'd give me books on art. So <laughs> I said, very much, but I'm off. And then I left England with £25 in my pocket, which was all the ones allowed to take abroad in those days, not that my parents had much more to give me, and went off for the next six months or so, travelling towards Ceylon, where my godfather was. But I got kind of lost in the deserts <laughs> of Syria and ended up living with a very, very interesting Bedou tribe family. Sultan al-Shilan, his tribe went right down to the Aden and we had all sorts of adventures and it was a very 
exciting time. And when I finally got back to England, I somehow got to be, I was asked by Professor Zainer, who was the head of really the top professor in the world for comparative religions and Buddhism. And he took me on as his student. And so I studied with him. He had written a book called Mysticism, Sacred and Profane. And mysticism from the age of about 10 was my favorite topic. So I studied with him. It was an awkward affair, but it was very interesting. And then I was introduced at 16 to cannabis by someone who shared the same digs as me, who had been in the army and therefore was quite a few years older. And I was amazed at the beauty which came out of hearing Ray Charles on Mm -hmm. cannabis. And then that was it when I was 16. Then a few years later, when I was, I think, 22, I was introduced to LSD. And I thought, well, it was amazing, amazing, the mystical experience. It kind of produced the experience that I was studying and had been studying for a large part of my life. The mystical experience seems to be common to all religions at the center, the core of them. And so then I became very interested in that. But at the same time, I somehow had this feeling that it wasn't really a way of life. It was more like a trip to the fun fair. Anyway, it was a very exciting period. That was in 1965. Then I had a kind of rather major trauma by someone who actually was rather unattractive personality who had turned leery onto LSD and started something called the World World Consciousness Psychedelic Centre in London. Mm-hmm. And he kind of hung around like that. So you say someone who turned Timothy Leary on, right? He turned Timothy Leary onto LSD. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway, he he was not an attractive fellow and I certainly didn't fancy him, but he hung around pretending to fancy me and then he poured kind of 4,000 trips of LSD in my coffee when I had hepatitis C, actually, and I had a really as bad a time as you can have. More or less died. Luckily, one doesn't die on LSD. But um, that was a major trauma, and I kind of retired to here, country where I was born, and lived in a hut for a few months until someone came and said I had to go to a party in London, and I went there. And there I met this amazing Dutch scientist doctor, Bart Hugues, who became a great love of my life. And he had hypotheses about how psychedelics, in particular LSD, work in the brain, how it changes the ratio of blood to cerebral spinal fluid, thereby giving brain cells more glucose and oxygen, more combustion and increasing the metabolism. And this was kind of incredible information because it enabled me to live on LSD and function by basically keeping the sugar level normal. So it started a whole new chapter in my life. And I was amazed at the enhancement of capacity that came with being able to control an expanded sense of awareness. And the other hypothesis that he proposed was to do with the ego and how its physiologically conditioned reflex in the brain, which directs 
the diminished amount of blood which occurs when you become adult to the centers most in need. And anyway, the, this new understanding really was a spark of magic in my life. And I became very dedicated to understanding better the physiology and the psychology and the human brain and how it works and how one can change its um, capacity of work by taking a compound such as LSD. Really, so Bach's kind of re for the first time, you, you, your scientific background met your experiences. Yeah, exactly. And suddenly it ignited it. And I suppose intellectually it was the most exciting period of my life, that um, suddenly opening oneself up to this new vision. And because we pretty well lived on LSD. And in those days, a dose of LSD was much more than a dose is these days. It was 250 micrograms. Once a day? You would, you would take it every day, would you, to, to facilitate? We take it every day with gaps. But I found that I particularly liked the second and the third day when you get more accustomed to it. And funny enough, that really is, in a sense, the equivalent of a modern microdose. And I found that in that state where I was stimulated above my normal daily state, yeah. but still in able to be in com complete control of myself, that was a state I found optimal. And our kind of fun, actually, was studying the human condition and realizing what a terrible, terrible state humanity is in. This yeah. talking ape has really got out of control and is kind of destroying itself and the world and all of that. So the fascination was trying to understand the complex issues better and work out how one might use this tool for the betterment both of oneself and the world more generally. Oh, it's been your, your touchstone ever since, really, hasn't it? Yeah. That's where the vision of Beckley and research that restarted. That was where the first roots were planted. Absolutely. And the, our relaxation in the evening was playing the ancient Chinese game of Go. I don't know if you know that, but it's yeah. a game which is totally cognitive. It it's, depends on an intuitive pattern recognition, yes. which in a way is the basis of thinking. And what I discovered was because we took it very seriously. I'm sure we did, Amanda. You take everything seriously. <laughs> yeah, right. And we wrote down thousands of games and who, you know, the, the handicap, because it's a very clever handicap system. Uh -huh. So you can do it against different levels by having a handicap. Yeah. And I was a slightly better player than my opponent, and he had a handicap of three. But if I was an LSD and he wasn't, and I kept my sugar level normal, then I won nine games in a row and his handicap went, went up to six. So that to me was kind of proof that LSD can increase cognitive functioning, at least in pattern recognition. And so in a funny sort of way, I've never proved, it's never been proved since, but those gave me a great passion for how one can change cognitive functioning 
and choose what level you want to be at. And an important point, I think, in my understanding was my father, who I had a very, very close relationship and adored, was a diabetic, a bad diabetic and a painter. And he didn't want to lose his sight. So he kept his sugar level always very slow, low. So he was continuously slipping into sugar and having kind of semi-falling into the ditch. And, uh, you yeah. know, so I, I as a child, as a three-year-old onwards, well, was his carer and went everywhere with him, wherever he went, I went, and carried the sugar bars with me so that when he passed out, I could bring him around. So I knew sugar level in the blood very intimately from a very early age. And so when I started taking LSD, it was second nature to me once I'd been told that the brain is very greedy in its compulsion of glucose when you're concentrating, so the sugar level drops. Mm -hmm. And therefore, to keep your concentration, uh, you need to increase your glucose to intake and also take vitamin C so you can produce adrenaline, which keeps the sugar level. Yeah, I see. From going too low. I mean, so you, you said the second and third day when presumably a bit of tolerance develops. So you don't get such yes. uh, powerful tricks, but you do get more ability to do it. In- exactly. So, uh, exactly. A tolerance comes. So you don't feel it so strongly, but you still feel the high. And mm-hmm. actually, increase the dose because as LSD is non-toxic you don't get any hangover from Mm. increasing the dose and what we do is increase the dose for as long as we wanted and then stop and have a few days clean out two or three Mm -hmm. days and then start the process again so it was an incredibly exciting period of learning I've never in my life learned as much condensed and so exciting and also it was the, just the time when prohibition was setting in so it was all kind of which made it in a way very funny you know one learned not to kind of laugh too happily when one was po- passing a policeman yes. and all that it was a strange time it was strange but in fact it was a very unpleasant time because i remember you telling me that bart was actually essentially uh, ejected from the country right yeah, it was a very Strange in that because he was kind of a top, the top uh, medical student, and all professors were all wanting him to be with them. And he was brilliant, outstandingly. I think he was a genius. He's the only genius I think I've ever met. A person with mm. immense knowledge. And then he gave an interview rather stupidly to one of the tabloid papers or some paper. I remember it to this day. And they asked him about LSD. And I I have no idea, I can't remember what he said, but that it can be a very interesting compound if used with intelligence, whatever he said. And then the next day, that was a headline saying, this dangerous idiot should be thrown out of the country. And then, whatever, a month later or something, in the middle of the night, a very kind of elegant gentleman came and knocked on our door and asked to speak to Bart and said he had to leave the country. So. We both left to go to the Netherlands. We had no money, which always made life much more difficult. But we went there, and he was never allowed back. For 25 years, he couldn't get back into England, or 20 years or something. What was the ground, were the grounds for the exile that he inducing? It just shows how tightly controlled England is. 
uh, he had never committed a crime, but he they decided he was unacceptable and he was just couldn't get into the country, which which was an incredible bore for our lifestyles because um a huge strain on you as well. It was much easier to live in England, and I actually don't never could learn the Dutch language and didn't really like it. And, and anyway, so it produced it split us, and I continue going to the Netherlands. But can I just check? Did that happen when that happened? Even though LSD was legal, is that right? Yeah, yeah, because it happened in 1966. Exactly, exactly. So the, they invoked some law of uh, of kind of moral turpitude to basically exile yeah. your partner. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it was possible. And then he tried repeatedly to get into England again. I mean, we returned to England in a, in a ghastly boat because we had no money. Everything was had to be done on the very lowest finance. And we came by boat. I remember it well. And it was a horrible, rough trip. And we got to wherever we got in England. And he was refused entry. And so the, there was this this blockage on him entering. And, I mean, we weren't in a position to kind of get a lawyer to see why it was or anything, so we never did. But it just kind of showed what a highly controlled country England was in those days, at least. I should have learned a lesson from him. I should never have spoken about LSD on the BBC, and I wouldn't have been sacked as a government's advisor. You should have warned me that it was a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I remember warning you not to take up the mantle of, what was it, of chair of the advisory council of the Missing Youth Day. I remember saying it will be a, a poisoned, poisoned sword. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you got the conversation open, and at least uh, now I've got my own podcast. Yeah, and you used it brilliantly, Dave. I trust you to use it so well, your, your punishment turned to your reward, and I compliment you for that. But Thank you. anyway, it, it changed the pattern of our lives because I had this beloved pigeon who lived with me and um, he wouldn't have liked to have lived in Holland because he'd had to be in a cage. Here he flew around free. That's what, didn't it, Amanda? It seems to me that that was the, the real, that gave you, not, it was obviously hugely stressful, but it made you very resilient. You wanted to... You wanted to prove the authorities wrong. You wanted to get out there and, and, and try to show the world what you discovered, the value of these drugs. Absolutely. And we were very dedicated to trying to get scientific evidence to show the potential benefits of the psychedelics. I mean, I, I really kind of felt driven by the realisation of how this completely pure non-toxic compound in the minutest amounts you can possibly imagine could bring about complete change in cognitive functioning, which could, when well managed, be very beneficial in many different ways. I.e. it could make you think deeper. It was a strange how you appreciated the beauty of a visual beauty and musical beauty. And when you were in the flow, it it increased the kind of thought mechanisms. And it was a very strange and beautiful opening of another deeper form of experience. And I remember years later being asked, how much did it add, do you think, your experience? 
of LSD or um, psychedelics. And I remember saying, well, I think it added 60%. And in a funny sort of way, I do think it added a lot. It enabled me to fulfill myself more in a deep way, I think. And now later, when finally you and I managed to do the research on LSD, which I waited 50 years before I could get to that point, we saw, didn't we, Dave, how the whole brain is lit up with connectivity. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it feels like, that your your senses and your you've got the emotions and memory and all the different senses are more astute and working together in a kind of looser formation where suddenly intuitive kind of realizations of things would crop up. So it's a different type of thinking to the normal Absolutely. Adult thinking. But it must be very satisfying for you to, to see that the science actually proved you right, didn't it? Not necessarily yeah. in terms of blood flow, but certainly in terms of the, the fluidity and the connectivity and the, you know. Absolutely. And the, the ego losing its repressive grip. That came true. And funny enough, in the fMRI study, we didn't show an increase in blood supply. And I'm very keen to revisit that. Because the study I did with Franz Wallenweider using PET scan did, in fact, show an increase in global blood volume, capillary volume. And so I can't think why it's taken me so long, but I want to revisit that whole issue. And funny enough, only today, or was it yesterday, I contacted someone called Roth, who I did a program on Hamilton Morris's thing about LSD. And he had he was the man who'd discovered how the LSD molecule is kind of enveloped by the serotonin 2A receptor. And he wrote to me. That's right, yes. There, saying, because I said I'd love to do some research with him on how what effect LSD has on the vascular, because I, I think it constricts the veins and increases the blood the capillaries and he said well Mm -hmm. it may well be so because the serotonin 2a receptor is also very much on the vascular system so i heard that today dave so that's a very interesting bit of knowledge i think and i am looking forward to building on it and seeing if there's truth in the fact that one of the actions or the basic action of lsd is to increase the capillary volume in the brain is rather like in my mind being, I like it as a farmer's daughter because irrigation obviously is an important part of fertility and the idea Absolutely. that it's increasing the blood supply is rather beautiful in a way. Well, tell us a bit about you. So you've, you're a sort of, you've become a, a, a quite a knowledgeable scientist without simply from experiments you've done on yourself, and then also raising money to work with other groups. So tell us about Beckley and the vision behind Beckley, please. Well, I mean, from 1966 to the 70s and 80s, I did, I continued studying, you know, all the things to do with the brain and consciousness and physiology and all of that. And I continued looking for scientists with whom I could work and do research to investigate the hypothesis that I held and see whether they were true or false, and with and to change global drug policy because it was so totally obvious to me that prohibition was insanity 
and in, fit, in fact. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. Look, let's park the discussions about policy till a bit later, but I want to tell us a bit more about the setting up of the Beckley, this facility to essentially support and develop the science of psychedelics, uh, and I think also MDMA, which has been so successful over the last 30 years. So tell us about that and about your vision and your achievements. Yes. Well, my passion, and I felt driven, like a kind of vocation in a way, to understand how these compounds, psychoactive compounds, can enhance human consciousness. That, in a way, was my passion. How how can it create the experience of the mystical experience, which was always the centre thing I'd been chasing to understand as a child, and also increase cognition and sensibility to beauty, music, emotion, nature, all of those things. How can it enrich one's life so exceptionally? And how to understand what is happening to make that happen and how can one therefore make it available for other people. So that is what I kind of spent the 60s, the 70s and the 80s working on, searching, and I was had two main companions in life, Bart Hugis and Joe Mellon. And we felt safe in the sense that I always had a companion to talk about these things. But although I made an artwork of trying to get this knowledge out there and get doctors to be interested in researchers and the same scientists, I realized that I wasn't succeeding. So the question was, how, as a a female with no letters after my name, no money, no reason why anyone should listen to me, how can I change both global drug policy so that these things can be legitimately studied and the taboo on the subject so that actually people would find it interesting to research them and look into them and see if what one was saying was true or not. So I decided I couldn't do it as Amanda Fielding. It just didn't seem to happen. So I better become a foundation. It was like the Trojan horse, like becoming something else. And it's very simple. You can just call yourself a foundation, become a foundation. And without, I had no money. I didn't know foundations were meant to have money, mm-hmm. but I did it. I liked the word foundation. And then I was very lucky in getting, really in a way, the world's leading experts, scientific experts, to be on my advisory board. I started with asking Albert Hoffman, who I knew and loved, and he said yes. And then I I moved to the establishment. And at that point, the top neuroscientist in England was Colin Blakemore. And he very charmingly, sweetly said he'd be on my advisory board. And then from there followed a number of other eminent uh, scientists, including my dear friend Dave Nutt, who was on the... So we had a battery of really distinguished scientists. I could do much more than I could do as a simple Amanda Fielding. As my Jamie, my husband, said, I married Amanda and I got a foundation. Yes. One of the clever things you did, Amanda, one of the very clever things, and in fact, where, when we, the way we first met was to host these uh, Oxford conferences. Yes. 
we get to talk about psychedelics in it from a very scientific perspective rather than from a sort of historical yes. or experiential. That was genius, that because is that that people began to get confident in talking to each other without the fear of being you know, abused by the perpetrator. Well, pardon me for butting in mid-episode, but I wanted to say a huge thank you to all the drug science community supporters. It's thanks to your donations that this podcast is possible. To thank our most generous community members, on the 8th of June this year, 2021, we will host a live podcast recording event exclusively for our premium and philanthropic community members. In this special episode, you can be the host and you can ask me anything. If you want to come to this recording, there's still time. Assuming, that is, you're not listening to this in the distant dystopian future. There will be a link to the event in the show notes for the current premium in philanthropic community members and information how to become a member to join me on the 8th of June. I look forward to seeing you then. And now, back to the show. And I had that idea because for some reason I knew someone who gave a very think tanks at Windsor Castle. So I said, why don't, you, why don't I do a think tank about drug policy and how wrong it is that psychedelics and cannabis are put in the same bag as all other drugs because they're completely different and they should be treated in a completely different way. And so that started my kind of move into the policy game. At that point, there, there was no idea that really policy should be based on evidence base. It was just um, what the government laid down. Absolutely. Perish the thought that policy might be based on evidence. My goodness. Yeah, exactly. What you be thinking? <laughs> I remember, do you remember that nice man who's the head of the UN drug policy, Chola, um, Indian? He was a frankly nice man. And he was being put down for um, having absolutely no idea. The countries had no idea about policy. And it was like uh, it was filled in by the cleaning lady. And he said, oh, well, at least it's an. A beginning, I remember him saying. We're beginning to have an evidence base. But So those seminars, that first one at Windsor Castle um, was cancelled because I think it was Prince Harry was caught smoking a joint or something, and it was front-page news. So they, after two years of preparing for the seminar, they closed it down. And then I was having... I thought you were going to corrupt him. What? <laughs> yeah. And then I was having suffer with... Um, Colin Blake, when I said how disappointed I was two years down the drain, and then he said, well, why don't you do it at Magdalen College? And that was the first of those seminars, which you came today, but I can remember you being there. And then there was a sequence of others, and I gave them mainly at the House of Lords, just because foreigners hold House of Lords. In. So I, I had kind of, it was very odd, I had the head of Russian drug policy begging me to come. I remember that as well. Terrifying. And yeah. How many minders did he have? He wanted to surround Afghanistan with a network of tanks to keep all the drugs in. It was very Russian. And then you remember um, the head of NIDA came, that very nice man called Charles Schuster, who was spending billions on kind of suppressing psychedelics. And he said how because it was Chapman House rules and uh, it was all private. And he amazed the American people there by saying how the most important experience in his life had been psychedelics and how it had made him, you know, play the trombone. And anyway, 
They were very interesting, those meetings, because I would play a role in deciding what we talked about, which was basically my aim was to separate cannabis and psychedelics from the restrictions placed on the other drugs because of their exceptional potential benefits. Amanda, we, yeah, we were just talking about the fact you you saw that there, you needed more than just science. You couldn't progress this field just by bringing in scientists. You had to start working with policymakers to try to get some of these restrictive controls on particular psychedelics and cannabis uh, removed. So, so how did you go about that? Yes, so then I, I realised that there's a catch-22, that mm. um, even if one could find the scientists who were interested and were willing to collaborate with one and do the research, they would somehow be punished or uh, the institution where they worked wouldn't be happy. And because I remember one of the seminars, I actually suggested doing the scale of harm to show that cannabis and psychedelics are incredibly low or in harm. And mm -hmm. I wanted to do the scale of harms and benefits. And I remember Colin Blakemore saying, well, cut out the benefits, because for one thing, there's no evidence about benefits. And for a second thing, if there was evidence about benefits, you wouldn't be allowed to talk about them. So let's do the scale of harms without the benefits. So that was very kind of, you know, just how amazingly taboo Absolutely. that kind of truth was. And it was a kind of inquisition again, where the truth was not allowed to be expressed. <laughs> Absolutely. It was, in a way, it was a, a battle with the taboo I felt one was playing. So it was essential to change global drug policy in order to be able to undertake the research. But if one could undertake the research, it would feed into the changing of the drug policy. So the, the two factors were interrelated. Yeah, I've always taken the view that they didn't want research because they didn't want research to undermine their, their the hysteria about the harms. They didn't want the truth to come out because it would have exposed the, the no. fallacies of the, of the banning. Absolutely. And I also saw at that point that the only reason that cannabis was considered so taboo and so dangerous was without cannabis, there weren't enough people in the world to have a, a war on drugs. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting Other drugs were kind of 1%, some, 1 point something yeah. percent. You couldn't spend hundreds of billions a year on the damage of one point something percent. And so cannabis being 4% of the world's population taking it suddenly boosted the number to 5% and therefore... Yes, serious problem. <laughs> but it was very, very strange what a blockage it was and that the UN mm. and all the 190 countries who had signed the UN conventions prohibiting drugs never spent an hour discussing drug policy. It was very, very weird, and it kind of showed how mad the human ape is, actually. But you were very good at coordinating international efforts. I mean, you spent a lot of time particularly working with the Latin American countries. Yeah. And so it was, in a way, how do, how do you get the elephant to eat the pill? How do you make humanity understand that actually these compounds which our ancestors used to set advantage, because I think uh, largely 
uh, probably the taking of psychedelics in early evolution helped create language and culture and music and medicine and all the things we value. And how does one get that through the taboo? So it's very long. And I always wanted, since I had treated myself as my own laboratory, and for me, LSD was the compound I grew to know and love. I was longing to do research on LSD, but that was much more taboo. And as Dave and I found when we set out and, and to research it, psilocybin was much better because no one knows what it means or how to spell it or what it is. And so the taboo is much lighter on it. So yes, yes, yes. when we started, when Dave was at Bristol, and Dave hadn't done research in psychedelics, so we had to, we spent about four years doing cannabis before one got the approvals to work with psychedelics, wasn't it, I think, as well. That's right, yeah, absolutely right. And then uh, Dave moved to Imperial, and we started the Beckley Imperial Psychedelic Research Program, leaving out the word psychedelic, because it was so taboo, one wouldn't have been allowed it. And, well, we started doing some really wonderful work there. And a young man called Robin, who had visited me once at Beckley and asked where he, where he should go to do his PhD, he cleverly mentioned to me two catch words, one being Freud and the other being LSD. So I said, well, why don't you go and study with Dave? And he did. And then he came to be our, we employed him as our principal investigator when we started the Beckley Imperial Research Programme. And he's done rather well for himself, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. He should be very grateful, I think. But probably he is somewhere. But we did really exciting. We worked as a very good trio. And we did really exciting work. Our first psilocybin study showed a decrease in blood supply to the default mode network, which is the kind of modern version of the ego. And that was exactly what actually me and Bart and Joe had prophesied long ago, that one of the actions of LSD, of the psychedelics, is to diminish the control of the ego over the rest of the brain so that the rest of the brain could communicate with itself much more freer. And at that point, we still couldn't do research on LSD, I think, but... uh, Dave, that took us another, whatever, four years or something before we managed to do research on LSD. And then that showed in an amazing blaze of beauty how um, the connectivity in the brain is magnified. The whole brain lights up with interconnectivity. And that is a kind of a beautiful visual expression of what one experiences. Absolutely. And, and the other thing about that was that we raised money through crowdfunding, didn't we? We crowdsourced uh, enough money to, to finish off all the imaging. Yes, absolutely. Pay for the brain imaging. That yeah. was, and, and from in 24 hours, we did it. And from 40 countries, money came in. 40, wow. I didn't, yeah. Yeah. And then I thought, in honor of Albert Hoffman, who had become a very great friend of mine. I never thought one could kind of approach a scientist in Switzerland. It never occurred to me. And then I met him at some conference. And I said to him, oh, have you ever thought that LSD increases the volume of blood in the brain capillaries? And he said in a very 
kind of modest Swiss way. Oh, I'm just a little Swiss chemist, not a physiologist. But I and my wife, we hang from our feet every day to get more blood in the brain. Blood in the brain. (laughs) And there's a wonderful photograph of him in, in his 90s, his wife, hanging from her feet. And it was just rather a charming description. I'm still facing that bit of research. Yeah, it's a nice thing you did. You also did produce a rather beautiful book, sort of commemorating LSD. Right. Uh, was it called The New Eloise? Yes, The New Eloise. Hoffman's Elixir, was it? Yeah, uh, the New Eloise. What was it called? Yes. And it was lovely, uh, lovely stories of Albert Hoffman. And he said, if a scientist's not a mystic, he's not a scientist. He was a wonderful man. And he used to have mystical experiences in his childhood. And so Uh when he somehow was making LSD and he had had been um, discarded because it didn't have an effect that they could pick up on animals, and he had a premonition to go back to it, and he'd never had that about another compound ever before. And when he went back to it three years later, Oh, really? I see. He suddenly felt change in consciousness, which reminded him of his mystical experiences of childhood. And that made him think, I must try this compound again. I must, you know. And so the following day, I think he took what is considered the smallest dose you can take, which was 250 micrograms. And he had an enormous trip, which actually he didn't eat. Like a dog to begin with, and he bicycled home on it and um, felt as though, you know, had quite a nasty time. But that was the birth of uh, the psychedelic revolution, in a sense. It was amazing. And he was such a gentle old man with a twinkle in his eye and amazing. At 102, he was still sharp and could talk in several languages mm. and joke and uh, didn't wear glasses. And he, he, he was an amazing. Wow. Yeah. And do you, do you attribute all that to LSD, or do you think that... No, I'm afraid not, because he didn't really love LSD. In a funny uh, sort of way. He liked to have a little tiny microdose and walk in the woods right. and inspired that way. But he didn't love it. In, in that book where I actually, oh yes, I asked Sasha Shulgin, who was another mm-hmm. wonderful giant of that age group, and who, who made MDMA and a lot of other compounds mm. to write a chapter. And he wrote a chapter saying how, how Albert didn't really love LSD and actually told Sasha he preferred MDMA. So I said, I can't put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah, it was rather awful. I decided that I couldn't use it. <laughs> <laughs> But you've, uh, you've, you've, look, you, I mean, you've talked about our, the research we've done together, but you've also been, you know, very effective at, at research collaborations elsewhere. And, and I think there yeah. are two I want you to talk a little bit about. One in, in Spain, where you're looking at uh, neuroregeneration, I think. Is yes, that? with ayahuasca, which is new traditional people make in the Amazon. And that showed regeneration of brain cells, which was very interesting. And then another research I, I inspired and was part of was rather fascinating because we just saw I was offering at that point $5,000 to start this research. And Roland Griffiths said, what, what, what might I like to do? And I said, well, 
when I first met Bob, when I, I used to smoke because I'd started smoking because I was so tall and I wanted to stop growing. I was huh. nicotine. <laughs> so, so soon I'd taken up a smoking habit. And anyway, Bart said it was a disgusting habit. Would I give it up? So I decided, yeah, I'll give it up. I'll, I'll take an LSD trip and give it up. And that's what I did. I never smoked again. I took it and on LSD I realized what a disgusting habit it is. I don't really like it at all. And it completely blocked my addiction, um, just the kind of um, self-suggestion and mm-hmm. smoke mm-hmm. again. So when I was talking to Roland about what study one might do with this minute amount of money I'd produced, and I suggested why not giving up overcoming nicotine addiction, that's a study they took up doing, and it had proved amazingly successful with an 80% success rate. And then Dave and I and Robin did with psilocybin. Our, our next study was, in the first one, we noticed a decrease of blood to the default mode network. And I think I'm right in saying, Dave, aren't I, that in in many psychological disorders like addiction, there's a hyperactivity in the default mode network. That's right. So we thought, well, psilocybin might help with depression. And so we did a very small study, I think starting with 20 people, but diminishing, to look at that and had an amazingly 67% success rate in the first week, which obviously dropped in the months that followed. But mm. I think at three months, it was still 42% or something. No than any other treatment. Very powerful. So that was a big breakthrough for us. Yes, and companies have taken it on now, haven't they? It's become commercialized. Yeah. One company we all know called Compass took it on, our study when we published it, and it's rapidly worth over $2 billion, which is lovely for them. Well, let's hope they'll put some of that back into research. I think yes. they will. Well, if it turns out to become a medicine, I'm, I'm very hopeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wonder, you've also gone back to microdosing, I believe. I think yes. I saw a paper today or an abstract from yes. the group in Maastricht where you've been looking at LSD microdosing. We did some very interesting dose testing study, safety and dose testing. Right. I did, only did in Maastricht because there was no space at Beckley Imperial to do it for some reason. But anyway, there wasn't. And so I went and did it at Maastricht. And we had a very interesting results at 20 micrograms mm-hmm. showing enhancement in cognitive functioning, in mood, and in pain management. Interesting. Very interesting. And it was very interesting, there's a certain kind of factor you can see in the blood, which is uh, BDNF. It's a mark that shows neuroplasticity and shows that that increased, which is very interesting, uh, with LSD. Even the microdose. What a wonderful compound Mm. for for palliative care for old people. Mm. It increases enhances cognition, mood, and vitality, and pain management. And so at the moment, I'm just proposing doing a study with palliative care with microdosing LSD. Well, please do, please do, because I'm getting to the age where I might be needing palliative care. So get it get it sorted soon, please. You might go, you might go on forever, Amanda, but I'm not sure I will. Oh, well, 
no, I think, and let's hope it will keep our functions going for as long as possible. But remarkably, I just, I've also heard that there are also, because you've got these cognitive effects, there's an interest in trying it out in ADHD, which is really fascinating. I've yeah. never, never even, ever imagined that you, one might be using LSD for ADHD, but it is, you know, if you get the right, you know, if the results are there in the, in the early studies, then why not try it? And also, very, very interested in trying it as a cognitive restorer mm. for aging cognitive decline. Because, funny yeah. enough, we did, I set up another co- collaboration, lovely collaboration in Brazil, oh, with yes. three there and different universities. And we do work on mini brains, in, which is out of human stem cells, one can yeah. create a brain which one can then research. Little brain in the test tube, yeah. Little ball of ball of neurons in the test tube, yeah. They're very beautiful. I've seen them. Yes, and so we noticed in that that LSD increased the activity of, of axons and dendrites mm-hmm. um, and synapses and everything. I increased that, and there was an increase in cognitive functioning. And then we tried it in rats. Interestingly, young rats love new toys, but as rats become adult. They give up the new toys, just play with old ones, like adults, adult humans do. And, but when you gave the adult rat some LSD, it would start to play with the new toys. So we translated that into humans and, well, think, you know, if one can give LSD to increase plasticity and then extra teaching, maybe when cognition is declining, it could be a good measure. But there's all sorts of incredibly exciting things which are opening up, not only psychological healing, which can come about by the use of psychedelics, as Dave knows only too well, but also, I think, physiological teaching and treating neurodegenerative illnesses. And that's an area I'm just beginning to work on. Absolutely. And it must be very pleasing for you to see, you know, the... It's very pleasing for me at the least. I'm sure it's for you to see that the basic scientists are now kind of clamoring to get on the on the on the train because the train's moving and it's moving yes. clinically, and they want to understand. and 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 that is the ultimate kind of test of value. If you can get these so-called real scientists involved, then it, it must be true. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And there's a kind of what is more dangerous is that there's a kind of gold rush which cannabis created has slightly blown over onto the psychedelic world, which has its advantages and disadvantages. Well, there are lessons from cannabis that we can hopefully can learn you know, and, uh, yes. and have a more measured development, yes. Absolutely. But there's so many areas to explore. And then other areas which need to be developed. I mean, I do think that the psychedelics, what, what in fact, just what I thought in the 60s, when I first learned to use them, I do think they offer a paradigm shift in how we approach many of human problems. And now one of our major problems is an epidemic of mental illness. And I think at the moment the normal pharmacology has very little, they have no new ways of treating it. The only way is with SSRIs and antidepressants which are more like sticking plasters, aren't they, Dave, than a real treatment? Yes, yes. So actually, I would say more like um, 
a plaster on a broken arm. You, know, you set things and then eventually it heals internally, whereas psychedelics definitely uh, are much faster acting and, and may completely reframe the person's relationship with their, their world and their illness and so they can overcome it, absolutely. Yes. And what is rather wonderful, I, what I love about it in a way, is that in a sense modern science killed off the spiritual world. Yes, yes. And that became a dead a dead thing, which in a way helped mankind become more lost and more kind of thrown into the digital world and feel feel it's lost its soul somehow. And what's so fascinating is this new opening of a new healing, which we're finding with psychedelic-assisted therapy to heal human depression and addiction mm. and all of these psychologically based illnesses, at the center seems to be the mystical experience. That seems to bring about the neuroplasticity in which a person can change, change their outlook, change their behavior at a very, very deep level. And so it's rather beautiful that science has brought to life, in a sense, the mystical experience. And so it's a, it's a kind of a completing a circle. Well, it is. Thank you, Amanda, for pointing that out. And I'm, I'm going to finish now by saying, of course, it's completed a circle for you as well, from your yeah. mystical childhood, you know, through your experiences, through your scientific endeavours and your, your foundation and your policy. You know, you've had an, a phenomenal impact on the field. At the end, you know, you are now being able to understand in a, in a, in a, in at, at several levels those experiences in childhood uh, that drove you forward. So, thank you so much for sharing so much with us. It's been a, it's been a wonderful, wonderful conversation, and I'm sure everyone who listens to this will will be really, really delighted to that you've given us so much uh, to dig into and to think about. So, thank you very much, Amanda. Thank you, David, and thank you for all the wonderful work we've done together. And I hope we will do a lot more in the future. Let's hang in there, Amanda. Make sure we can, right? So stay well. Lovely. Stay very well. 